Good evening. I am uh, glad to be here with you all tonight. Uh, if you missed the many announcements, uh, I am JC. I'm back from my first semester at seminary down in Michigan, Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful time of learning and spiritual growth down there for me. Thank you so much to those of you who were praying for me. Um, I really felt that the Lord was really working in wonderful ways. And I'm glad to be able to also have the privilege to be interning with you here for the summer. I'll be leaving mid-August, and I hope that even as this is a learning experience to me, I hope that in some measure I'll be able to be a blessing to our family here at Faith. Uh, Our text for this evening comes from the reading, the second reading we saw earlier, page 952 in your blue Bibles, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it's a short verse, but there's a lot of depth here. We're going to be looking tonight at 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9. We read the passage earlier, so we'll just read the verse now. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you do indeed give grace and glory. You showed us grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one full of grace and truth, whose truth we're now still able to receive, even as it's proclaimed and heard this evening. The truth is found in your word, and we pray that the truth would find a place in our hearts and would bear great fruit, all to the glory and honor of your name. We ask this in the name of mighty Christ. Amen. Have you ever heard of a criticism sandwich? If you've done any sort of maybe leadership training or marriage counseling, you might have heard this phrase before, a criticism sandwich, or what some people might call the Oreo principle, which the way it works is simply like this. If you want someone to receive criticism, who normally responds poorly to criticism, as most of us do, uh, the way to make it more receptive and palatable is to use the criticism sandwich. You start off with a compliment, an affirmation, a thanksgiving for the person. Give the meat of the criticism and then end, again, with an affirmation of, you're doing really well, I appreciate you. And when you sandwich the criticism, in this way, they eat the sandwich. (laughs) And this, you could say, is actually an example that Paul is using here in the first letter to the Corinthians, and he does the same thing in the second. He starts in this introduction that we read. He is gonna be giving a lot of criticism to the Corinthians. This letter is jam-packed with admonitions and rebukes. But he starts off by affirming his love and care for them, and he ends the letter in the same way, giving them greetings, telling them how he looks forward to seeing them again. And so we see this principle here in this text. And as we walk through, we'll take a quick look at just the context of these first nine verses of Paul's introduction, and just see him doing this. If we look at verse two of 1 Corinthians 1, He starts off encouraging the Corinthians that they indeed are the church. They're a part of this body of Christ gathered from among the nations. They are sanctified in Christ, set apart to be his holy people. He calls them saints. He wishes them grace and peace in verse 3. He thanks God for them in verse 4 and tells them just how gifted they are. 
And these giftings themselves are going to be a source of admonition and rebuke later on. But even now, he's able to affirm that God has gifted them in every way, in all speech, in all knowledge. And this is good, and he's encouraging them. And he comes then to verses 8 and 9, and after giving some personal encouragement, we see him give spiritual encouragement. He wants to encourage them in the Lord and in who God is. So if you look at verse 8 there, we see a wonderful promise. And Paul is going to give the church a promise, and a promise that is founded on God's character, a promise which is going to be enforced by a preeminent example. And that example is what we're going to be looking at in more depth. But the promise first in verse 8, he promises that Christ, it says, he will preserve your faith or he will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's the promise of sustained faith, being sustained guiltless until either we return to Christ or he comes back to us. He will indeed preserve our faith. And in order to make this promise really settle home for the Corinthians, he reminds them at the beginning of verse 9 that God is faithful. The reason we trust that God will sustain us in our faith is because our God's a faithful God. Our God keeps his promises. Our God keeps covenant with us. And so God's character assures us and provides the foundation for promises that we can actually trust. But he then, in verse 9, which we're going to look at in more depth today, verse 9 is where he wants to take this promise and tell them the preeminent example of where we've already seen this promise fulfilled, which will then assure us for what's going to come. He says, God is faithful who called you into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is meant to be a great encouragement to us. In a sense, you could say it's like an argument from the greater to the lesser. We were called into fellowship with Christ. What an amazing privilege to be called into fellowship with the Son of God. And Paul's saying that if this God, who would renew your heart when it was dead, give us life, open our eyes to see Christ, if he would bring life from the dead and actually unite us to his very own son, a son which needed to die and be crucified for sin in order to make this happen. If God will give us his son, how will he not freely with him give us all things? If God will call us into fellowship with Christ, how much more will he preserve us to the end guiltless in the day of Christ? If God can renew our heart, surely he will keep our hearts. So this is the fact that for us who believe that we've been called into fellowship with Christ, this is meant to be a motivation for our trust in God's continued faithfulness towards us. And so when we understand this reality of being called into fellowship with Christ, it allows us to live this Christian life with confidence, which is why we're going to take a deeper look at this idea of being called to fellowship with Christ. So we're just focusing simply on verse 9. And this part of it, of calling and fellowship. And we're just going to look at this in two simple points. Our calling to Christ and our fellowship with Christ. So first, our calling. For those of us who do have fellowship with Christ, this verse tells us that we were called there. Called there 
by God. And this term calling actually is a very significant term in the New Testament, and theologians take this, and we learn a doctrine of calling, in a sense, from the way Scripture speaks about how we are called to Christ. And we're going to look at this calling in two ways, how the calling comes to us externally and how the calling comes to us internally. Externally from the word, internally by the spirit of God. So first, this external call. We know that in a sense, God reveals himself to everybody. We learn this in Romans 1, Psalm 19. We see that God, in a sense, creation itself declares who God is and tells men that they ought to worship him. And though this, there's a general call, it's not enough to give knowledge of salvation. For that, we need a specific call, a specific word, the word of truth, the word of the gospel. And we learned about this recently, looking in Romans chapter 10. You can turn there if you wish. Romans chapter 10, at the end, it talks about how this call comes to us and the means that God uses. Romans 10 and verse 13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And if you were an astute student a couple weeks ago when Pastor Mark preached through this passage, you might have crossed out the word in halfway through verse 14 because it could read, how are they to believe him of whom they are never heard? How are they to believe Christ if they've never heard him, if he is now ascended into heaven no longer with us on earth? Well, the answer, it says that they will hear with someone preaching. Preaching is the primary way God speaks his word to us now. This is the external call, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is God's primary means of calling us. It's through his word. God calls by his word being read, being meditated on, but preeminently being preached. And I think just as an aside, there's something for us here as a church uh, to recognize the importance of being under the preaching of God's word because that's the way he is primarily pleased to call us to salvation, to convert our hearts and call us to Christ. And I'm sure many of us can point to the time where we were converted ourselves under the preaching of the gospel. Also reminds us of the importance of keeping our children under the preaching of the word, that they might hear the word of God and come to salvation one day. Because we never know when the word of God is gonna be met with the spirit of God and do a turning work in the heart. I remember um, hearing a preacher talking one time who had grown up in the evangelical church and said, you know, I'd probably heard the gospel hundreds of times. But it wasn't until he was in college and talking with a roommate of his who shared the gospel with him that he says, I felt like I heard the gospel for the very first time. I had heard it and heard it and heard it, but I never heard it. And this is the truth that leads us to the internal call. God's word comes to our physical ears, but the spirit of God gives us spiritual ears, an internal calling that meets with that external calling to draw us to Christ. And this call of the spirit 
It's a divine call. It's an effectual call. It works. It's a saving call. It's a specific call. It comes to specific individuals. And why does this work? Why does God's calling work so much fruit? Well, we come to Christ when the Spirit calls us because the Spirit changes our hearts. He takes out that heart of stone and gives us that heart of flesh that now loves Christ, now wants to come to Christ, now believes in Christ. And this is a work that we don't do ourselves. It's a work of the Spirit of God working on the heart of man. Just think of types of illustrations that the Bible itself gives us about this. Think of Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. Lord, can these bones live? They're dead. They're dry. No life in them. But then the tendons and the flesh appear. The skin covers them. But there's still no breath. But then the breath, the breath of the Spirit of God comes and brings life where there was no life. This is a picture of the regenerate heart. Or consider Lazarus, dead in the tomb. But then the word of Christ, the call, the call of the Spirit goes to him. Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth. And so it is with all of us. As one writer puts it, he says, when God calls, the dead hear it. When God speaks, his word creates ears so that creatures can hear what is said. And don't we so badly recognize that we all needed an effectual, spirit-wrought calling? Because without the call of the spirit, we would never have truly heard. We would never have truly loved. We never truly would have come. So we can thank God for this calling into fellowship that's not by the will of man, but by the Spirit of God. And it's an emblem of his grace to us that he would call us in so great a means when we were so unwilling. And we weren't just called to join a club, weren't just called to this building today, but we were called into the fellowship of the Son of God. The fellowship of the Son of God. Uh, The word here for fellowship is probably one of those half dozen Greek terms that we've all heard in various sermons. It's the word koinonia, which is talking about a fellowship, a communion, but really the idea is a sharing together, a commonality. This is us sharing, partnering in the life of Christ. Uh, We could look at this as our union with Christ, our coming to share in the life of Christ, but also we can look at this as our communion with Christ. And these are the two aspects I think we can see in this word for fellowship, which we'll look at. We'll look at our union with Christ, which is our objective state of standing with our Lord, and then our communion with Christ, which is our daily experiential understanding of what life in Christ looks at. Both of these are comprehended under the word fellowship or communion. So first, union with Christ. Union with Christ, says John Murray, is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's the foundation upon which our justification, sanctification, adoption, and eventual glorification rest on union with Christ. And union with Christ is, first of all, it's an objective change of our status, an objective change in our relationship to God. Just think of the biblical pictures. It says, we were once a slave, 
now we're a son. We were once in the kingdom of darkness, but now we've been called into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We were once an enemy, hostile to God, but now we're friends of God. One commentator says that union with Christ is coming into a state of friendship with Christ. This closeness, this sharing of life. And how often do we know, does Paul speak that we are in Christ? We're in him. We're united to him. There's many examples in the New Testament. He is the head. We are the body. He's the foundation. We are the building. He's the vine. We are the branch. Such a close connection. Such a beautiful, vital connection. We share in his death and resurrection. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. It's a true and real change of status. And it's also a permanent change. It's never going to get reversed. Like verse 8 said that we read already, he will sustain us to the end. Our relationship with Christ is firm and unchanging. And it's effectual. It works a change in our hearts. We will bear fruit if we are truly united to Christ. There will be the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. But union is never alone. It always comes with communion with Christ as well. One commentator writes that immediately on our union with Christ, we have fellowship with him in all the blessings of his purchase. This communion or fellowship with him is the necessary result of our union with him. If we have union with Christ, we will have communion with him. And I think a couple illustrations might be helpful to us um, as we consider what this twofold relationship looks like. A relationship that has an objective status, but also this experiential element. Consider, say, a marriage. Uh, my brother's here getting married in a couple weeks tonight. And in marriage, what do you have first? You have a covenant and you have this objective change in relationship a uniting of two people together. In our culture, this is often symbolized by the wife taking her husband's name, a new family identity, a change of name, a change of identity. But what comes with this union but communion, that intimacy and fellowship, the closest of human intimacy brought about as a result of this objective change. And we all know the relationship grows and there's closeness and there's distance at times, but it's anchored in that objective change. Or consider um, adoption. You bring a child into your home, again, they take the family name. There's been a, an objective change, but then not only do they take the name, they're welcomed into the family fellowship. They sit at the family table. They commune and enjoy company with the family. And interesting, if you think about it, the Lord actually gives us similar pictures in the church. Baptism is a picture of union with Christ. It's a picture of an objective change and transformation. It's a picture of taking the name of Christ. We are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His name is placed upon us. We have a picture of an objective change in relationship, but he also gives us a symbol of communion with Christ, which we were able to enjoy this morning, the Lord's Supper, the family table, where we enjoy fellowship with Christ, our elder brother, with our Father, 
and with our brothers and sisters here among us. And I do trust that many of us enjoyed sweet fellowship with the Lord this morning as we partook of his table. So union is that objective status. Communion is the subjective experience. But union with Christ, communion with Christ is not just fellowship with a spouse or a child. But like our verse says, we're called into the fellowship of God's son, Jesus Christ our Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of all creation. This is the one with whom we get to fellowship. What an amazing, amazing reality and an amazing blessing. We've been given the gift of union with Christ, but we also have the opportunity for communion with Christ. Union gives us access to that throne of grace. And this really will just be my one point of application tonight. It is really this. If God called us once to union with Christ, he now daily calls each one of us who trust in Christ to commune and fellowship with our Lord and to walk a life of fellowship with Christ. Maurice Roberts is an author who wrote a book on this very topic of union and communion with Christ, and he says that it is our great loss when we learn as Christians to live with only a small awareness of the love of Christ. It's our loss when we've learned to live with just a small awareness of Christ's love. And I think, sadly, many of us, myself included, often find ourselves in this place. We aren't living in the reality and awareness of Christ's immeasurable love for us. We feel perhaps only ankle deep in our relationship with Christ. And so what I want us to hear today is that call to go deeper, the call to wade out of the shallows and to realize what depths there are in Christ's love. As Ephesians 3 says, the height, the width, the length, the breadth, the inexhaustible love of Christ. You can never gorge yourself too much on the love of Christ. And I think there's a lot more here than a lot of us experience. We could consider many examples of David. Just his language, think of Psalm 27, one thing I have desired to see the beauty of the Lord. Or Psalm 42, like the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants after you, O God. Psalm 63, God, you're my God, earnestly I seek you. Or Psalm 84, like we sung tonight. To know the words of the Apostle Paul where he says, I determined, indeed I count everything as loss, but for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. There's so much more available to you and I. So let's not be content to wait in the shallows. Let's not be content with small experiences of Christ, but let us press on day by day. And how do we get there? It sounds beautiful. It sounds like this thing that we would like to have, but God actually gives us means. Think, how do we grow in fellowship with Christ? How would you advise someone if they said they wanted to grow in closeness or fellowship with their spouse or friend? Like any relationship, it takes time and it takes communication. If you want to grow close to someone, you've got to talk to them. You've got to listen to them. You've got to spend time with them. And so it is with Christ. And this is really what Christian worship is. We speak to God in our prayers, in our praises. We pour out our hearts before him. And he speaks to us in his word. His word read, meditated on, 
preached and listened to. This is how we commune and fellowship with Christ. And it's not just something we can spend a couple minutes a day in. We need to invest ourselves to know our Lord, to really fellowship and commune with Christ. Because truly, when you think about it this way, communion, to know Christ, is a much more powerful motivator to our times of devotion than is mere duty, a checkbox religion that just leads us to pride. If our goal is to meet Christ, then we will have greater excitement using all these gifts God has given to us. And yes, as with any relationship we know, it waxes and it wanes, it ebbs, it flows. Sometimes our hearts and affections are lively and bright. Other times they're cold and dull. And we're human and we feel it. But that's where we thank God for his grace, that he has grace to meet us in our need, in our human weakness, recognizing that struggle of flesh and spirit. He continues to forgive us for our lack of fellowship and to draw us, draw us with cords of love back to Christ. And maybe in closing here, maybe the way I'm speaking feels somewhat foreign to you, this idea of communing, fellowshipping with Christ. Maybe you're like a friend of mine who, she said growing up in the church, she always heard people talk about loving God, loving Christ, and that always never made sense to her. It seemed like a foreign idea. What do you mean that you love God? But then once God changed her heart, brought her to Christ, she realized, oh, I love God now. And so this call goes out to each one of us to come to Christ for fellowship. We must recognize that sin is what blocks our fellowship and communion with God. For sinners cannot fellowship with a holy and perfect God. But Christ himself has provided a way for fellowship by dying once for sin, living the perfect holy life we could never live, paying the penalty for sin that you and I could never pay. So that when we place our trust in Christ and by faith we believe that he took our sins upon himself, our filthy garments, and by faith we reach hold and take hold of that robe of righteousness that he freely offers, we repent and believe this good news. For indeed, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. This righteousness is available to you and I. The righteousness of Christ is the rock that we build on. This is our objective, unchanging union with Christ that can never be taken away. But there remains for us greater depths greater heights to which God calls us day by day. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, we thank you for your calling. We thank you for your drawing that we who were dead in trespasses and sins were made alive with Christ, even seated in heavenly places with him. And thank you for the gift of fellowship you offer. You offer to us to meet with Christ day by day, that you have not left us in the dark you have not left us alone, but you've come to us in your spirit. That just as Christ has promised, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. So would your spirit stir us up to reach and take hold of even just the hem of his garment, that in touching him, we would be made whole, find the deepest satisfaction for our souls and the greatest delights we could find. Truly would he be our chosen portion and our chosen lot. Cause us, O Lord, to increase in love for Christ. In his beautiful name, 
Amen.